Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Why are you following me? The stuff you wear is inappropriate for what you're planning on doing. You don't know anything about me. I'm ready. You're not. And none of the stuff that you're thinking means anything anyway. Never kissed anyone before. Hello and welcome back to Still Watching. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair chief critic Richard Lawson. Uh, we are back. We've been gone for a little while. Uh, so if you have forgotten in the last three months what we do here, or uh, you know if you are just joining us for the first time, what we do on Still Watching is that Richard and I latch on to some TV show that is currently airing one episode at a time. Uh, and we spend, you know, a, a, an hour or so every week just chatting about the latest episode. We have focused our attention right now on the new Luca Guadagnino miniseries, We Are Who We Are, which is airing on HBO and Sky Atlantic. Uh, Richard, how do you feel about going into Luca territory? Well, it's nice to travel to Italy, even though it's kind of a weird, you know, kind of eerily Americanized version of Italy. Um, and, you know, he makes such lovely worlds to kind of wander around in, weird as they may be. Um, so I'm excited. I think that, like, you know, I think that on this show, we have tended to cover stuff that maybe is a little, quote unquote, bigger or buzzier. Um, but we're in kind of an interesting interim time before the fall TV really gets ramped up. Um, but to that end, while I'm very excited about covering We Are Who We Are, we should also say what we're going to cover next, because I feel like that's going to be um, maybe a little more uh, on people's radar uh, than this one is. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm excited for us to spend a few leisurely weeks in Italy. Um, but you're right that the the show we're doing after this is a little more on brand for us, and that is The Undoing, which debuts October 25th, and that is also on HBO, and that is the uh, Nicole Kidman, uh, Hugh Grant, 
David E. Kelly, Susanna Beer, like, uh, all, all, all very, uh, very still watching friendly names, uh, attached to this upcoming project. So, uh, stick around with us. Come to Italy with us for a while and then, uh, let's go do a murder, I think, uh, is what we'll be doing on The Undoing at the end of October. Does that sound right, Richard? Yeah, that sounds right. I mean, I don't anticipate, based on the first episode, there being murder in what oh. we are, who we are, but you never yeah. know. <laughs> you, ne- you know? Honestly, yeah. you never know. If you've um, seen, if you've seen Luca Guadagnino's film, I Am Love, there can be sudden and unexpected death, so. Well, yeah, and there's, there's murder in, in a bigger splash as well. Um, and plenty of murder in Suspiria. So, okay, so we're gonna do something a little different this week than what we usually do. Um, which is we're gonna do a little bit of a catch up, like basically like how I spent my summer vacation watching TV catch up, where Richard and I are just gonna talk about some shows we watched, um, on the break and, you know, maybe shows we would have covered if still watching was running over the summer. Um, so, you know, just to give you some recommendations. Then we're gonna talk about Luca Guadagnino. Nino as a filmmaker and as someone, you know, this is his first foray into the world of television, uh, as far as I know. And so, you know, we're just going to chat a little bit, like maybe try to contextualize like what to expect from a Luca Guadagnino show. Uh, you know, we don't know necessarily what to expect from a Luca Guadagnino TV show, but we can maybe guess based on some film stuff. And then we'll premise ourselves a little bit in the world of We Are Who We Are and, and talk about that first episode uh, that aired this week. So yeah, so let us start with what we watched watched on our summer vacation or over the last few months. Uh, Richard, what, what caught your eye in a major way that you, you wish you could talk to me about every week? Well, I mean, I wish I could talk to the world about HGTV's new show, uh, Vacation Home Rules, Vacation House <laughs> Rules with Scott McGillivray, who people might remember from Income Property, another great Canadian home redo show. But I don't really think that's conducive to recapping, nor is it probably of interest to most people in our audience. But that has been quite a, a hit in our house. But I think for uh, for a show that I really wish that we yeah. could have covered. I mean, Babysitter's Club, sure, that's a terrific little series. But... <laughs> I feel like, and maybe you agree with me, that the standout series of this summer was I May Destroy You. Correct. Um, another HBO property. Uh, we're not solely in the tank for HBO, I promise, but it just, you know, just so happens we cover a lot of their shows. But anyway, you know, that's the show from Michaela Cole that deals with um, sexual assault and memory and, you know, online identity uh, in myriad interesting, really thoughtful ways. I mean, it's just some of the best TV that's come out, not just this year, but in many years. Um, so I feel like that would have been the obvious one. Do you agree? Yes, I completely agree. And I see a little bit of um, I May Destroy You, not just because uh, Michaela Cole uh, took her show to Italy a couple times. Um, but I see a little bit of it in, in this first episode of We Are Who We Are, uh, which we can talk about a little bit more when we get into the episode. But, um, yes, I mean, I may destroy you. I would have given anything to talk to you about that every week and, and talk to all of our listeners about it every week. It's just incredible, powerful storytelling. Um, and I really, I hope all of you, if you didn't, uh, check it out, I hope that you do. Um, you know, even without us uh, yammering in your ear about it every week. Uh, so that's, that's a big one. Another one, um, it technically premiered before we went on hiatus. Um, but I still wish we had talked about it, uh, cause it stuck in my head is normal people. Um, I don't know how mm. you felt about normal people, but I was like, I was, I was really captivated by it. And, um, you know, it's based on a, a great book and you know, I love talking about like book and show comparisons and stuff like that. So, um, normal people is something I really wish I had 
gotten to spend a uh, sort of long form podcast time with uh, this year. Did you did you like that show? How did you feel about it? Yeah, I didn't finish it. Um, not because I didn't like it. I just you know the yeah. the tide of things came along and swept me into other stuff that I had to cover. But um, yeah, and and clearly that show was so buzzy, um, so it seemed to capture attention in a very particular way because it's like a lot of sex yes but the way that that sex was in conversation with um some of the other kind of emotional and sociological elements of the show just i think got a lot of people talking about their own adolescences and their own experiences in relationships at that age and and how they're compromised but also kind of wonderful and and i i thought that you know that would have been good for conversation and it led to a really barn burning like lori moore review did you read that in the no. I think it was in the LA review of books or somewhere no. uh-uh. or maybe um or London review of books um but uh people should seek it out Lord the great author Laurie Moore wrote this piece talking about the show talking about the book but mostly the show and also kind of giving this very damning and probably not fair assessment of like millennial culture whatever that means exactly um but anyway it's a fascinating read and i think you know being someone from a couple generations removed it's interesting to hear what she had to say and what young people said in response to it um and i think it made you know at least a star out of uh the one guy whose name i'm now paul, paul mescal paul, paul mescal yeah i you think know. the leads yeah the leads are incredible uh and i don't want to uh like miss daisy edgar jones who's like an incredible scene partner for paul mescal in every way but it did remind me a lot of like adam driver and girls where you're just sort of like someone just like leaps off the screen at you and you're just like it's hard to ignore what paul mescal has going for him uh in this and hopefully yeah. a lot of future stuff so and and she wasn't being paparazzi walking around london in like short gym shorts so i think that probably also <laughs> contributed to paul mescal's uh uh rise to you know fame which is maybe unfair but there it it's, is it's true um it's the kind of perform like I I think the reason why I keep going back to the Adam Driver comparison is that I feel like his performance is the kind of thing that like all the like quote unquote great directors will see and be like I want that guy in my movie so like I wouldn't be surprised if he pops up in like a Scorsese or a Spielberg or like whatever that they're like get me the normal people guy you know sort of thing so um yeah I'm I'm, I'm hopeful for for big things uh, from Paul Mescal um and you know and I mean I mean, nomination for your first major, you know, TV role. That's that's uh, that's some good stuff. Uh, the last thing I want to mention uh, from my summer watching, it's actually ongoing on HBO, uh, is Lovecraft Country, which is a show that I feel actually a little like mixed about, um, but is once again based on a book, and I think. I, I, you know, and, and also there are limitations to what Richard and I can understand about that show because, you know, given our, the capacity of us, um, and there's some great, uh, non-white led podcasts covering the show that'll probably do a better job than we might have. But, um, I just find this particular adaptation, given that the book Lovecraft Country, uh, is written by a white man and the show is, uh, run by a black woman, the, and, and the subject matter it deals with, which is like Jim Crow America, the horrors of Jim Crow America made literal, uh, through like genre television. Um, I just think it's fast, endlessly fascinating to think about why certain changes were made and, you know, like uh, from one storyteller to the next. Does that make sense, Richard? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, I think that's another HBO show. And like, you know, if we if, if listeners want to kind of peek behind the, the curtains, how the sausage is made, um, it's hard for us to cover streaming shows because they're all available at once. Right, and right. HBO is one of the last things, you know, people uh, or you know, networks putting out prestige stuff that I think is worthy of conversation uh, in an intense like podcast form um, that's doing it week to week. So that's yeah, it's why. like HBO and FX on Hulu. And that's like kind of <laughs> it's kind of it. So uh you know we we were we were really happy to cover um the FX on Hulu show Mrs. America before our hiatus and stuff like that but that is you know i promise a uh, big hbo is not lining our pockets in any way um yeah so is there is there any are any other um summer or late spring tv that you want to mention richard before we we roll on um no probably just that like um uh, at the behest of the person I live with, I have been uh, rewatch uh, watching for the first time. He's rewatching uh, Fringe, which like oh, nice. I am like unbelievably into. After the we just finished season two, um, and I don't know. So if anyone you know, we're still mostly in lockdown. Whatever. If anyone you know, uh, in addition to all the new stuff that we can all be enjoying, if you want to deep dive into something to watch a couple episodes before bed, Fringe has been an unexpected uh, pleasure the last kind of month or so. Oh, great. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, it's so funny. I, I got into like a recent J.J. Abrams, you know, I'm doing another podcast about the TV show Lost called The Storm. We're rewatching the whole show. It's been a really interesting journey. We're like midway through or something like that right now. But then I was also watching Alias um, with a friend of mine. We were using it as like, like watching it while working out uh, in the quarantine sort of thing, long distance. And that's been really effective because Jennifer Garner has these really like aspirational arms. So you're like, one more rep to be as ripped as Jennifer Garner. Um, but Alias is a really, really fun rewatch because uh, that show got really messy, but like it was really good at the beginning. And then I watched, I rewatched some of Felicity recently for another podcast that I guessed it on. And so I was like really in the JJ verse. Uh, except for Fringe. So you completed the, uh, the, the quadrilogy of, of JJ shows with, uh, with Fringe. So it's, it's in the water. It's in the water that JJ Abrams. Um, all right. So that's, you know, that's some shows that we would recommend. Um, I think we, we most of all agree on I May Destroy You, um, uh, a really, a really fantastic, um, piece of, of art. Yeah, uh, is what I would call it. And I wasn't joking uh, in case people were mistaken about Babysitter's Club. It really is a great, great <laughs> show. Um, and you don't have to be, uh, you know, it's quote unquote target audience to enjoy it, I think. So just seek that out as well as, you know, really <laughs> high minded artsy stuff. <laughs> um, all right. Yeah. Say hello to your friends over in Stony Brook. I think Connecticut is. Yeah, that are. sounds right. Uh, all right. So, all right. So let's talk about Luca Guadagnino, uh, in general. Um, Luca Guadagnino, Italian filmmaker, uh, probably best known stateside for Call Me By Your Name. Uh, but, uh, you know, directed I Am Love, uh, A Bigger Splash. So A Bigger Splash, I Am Love, and Call Me By Your Name are uh, three films that he has, after Call Me By Your Name was completed, he started calling his Desire trilogy, which I think is an interesting thing to think about when we talk about this show. Um, and then he made this, gr- I thought, incredible remake of Suspiria, something that really stuck like in my head um, after I watched it. Uh, so that is... That is, you know, the the brunt of the Luca verse. Would you say that's true? Like, what is there? Is there anything major I'm missing? Well, no. I mean, I think that his, his the hallmark of his filmmaking, which has covered a really disparate array of topics, um, is this complete sensory immersion. Mm-hmm. You know, while also having, even in Suspiria, a kind of delicate hand. 
um, you know, my first experience of his films was I Am Love with Tilda Swinton, which I think came out about 10 or 11 years ago. Yeah. Um, and I d- knew nothing about the filmmaker. I knew nothing about what the movie was about, but I knew that Tilda Swinton was in it. And a friend from an old job, you know, took me and I think we might have gotten a little stoned beforehand. And I was just like totally bowled over in the best yeah. way and walked out of a now shuttered theater in Manhattan, uh, just kind of staggering down the street and, um, you know, have been really hungry to see what he, uh, did since. And, um, really, you know, while, while certain things like a bigger splash have maybe alienated more me more than others, like Calma by Your Name, I've always been drawn back into, um, his, the way that he marries aesthetics with a deeper kind of feeling and intent. I think that it's really easy for not easy, but like a lot of filmmakers can make a really pretty picture and put the right song uh, up against that picture. But like, that's it. And I think that, you know, there are moments in Guadagnino's work, even in this show where you're like, okay, this is just a nice thing to look at and listen to. But I think also there's that other thing that, that thought that kind of is rumbling underneath it always um, that makes him, I think uh, a really great filmmaker. It's interesting that you um, were alienated by A Bigger Splash. Uh, that is my favorite Luca Guadagnino film, and that is okay that we uh, had different experiences with that. But I think something that really, you know, rang true for me when I, I was just doing a little digging into some of the um, really in- brilliant writing people have done, film lovers have done about Guadagnino films to try to like better understand my relationship with them and my understanding of them. I did not know that he had named those three films uh, the Desire Trilogy, but thinking about that, thinking about the way in which in this show uh, that we're watching here and in those films, the camera treats uh, male and female bodies. I mean, it's just like what's interesting about Luca Guadagnino's uh, camera is that it equally um like i i just don't feel like it's the male gaze camera but it really lovingly uh captures what it's like to look at someone who you find incredibly beautiful because like as much as the camera worships army hammer and call me by your name it also worships dakota johnson in a bigger splash you know what i mean there's just like this equal opportunity (laughs) um like lurid gaze that's happening and it just it inspire it for me the viewer it inspires something in me um that not every film that tries to uh, examine what it means to be attracted to someone can do. As you say, it's that sensory immersion. Sometimes that can be yeah. unpleasant, um, but sometimes it can be just incredibly overwhelmingly powerful, you know? And I think that what he does really strongly and is really, is really doing in this show is he's really good at capturing something interior, which is a character thinking and making that, somehow manifest whether that's how he shot a scene or or even a single shot or scored it or whatever or you know um there's a sense of real knowing uh in his stuff uh even if people are the characters are confused like they are in Suspiria uh, or or you know someone like Elio in Calm Away Your Name who is really just kind of bursting at the seams with kind of new adolescent life and just like hungry to experience the world and and um but then there are also these lovely quiet moments um as there are in We Are We Are Who We Are so i, I think that like uh, what is so um appealing about what he makes is yes that there is this kind of loving gaze at at bodies and and people in beautiful settings 
but that kind of deeper connection, that deeper pull of kind of being inside the processes of their head and, 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 and feeling that kind of attraction, that kind of recognizing of like, Oh yeah, we're just like in the world together and thinking it through and processing things. I think that's really, um, it's really rare to see that done, uh, with so like, I hate this word, but like sensuously rather than intellectually, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's right. And like that, that full immersion, you know, like, uh, <laughs> It's interesting. I, I wrote, sorry, I'm so sorry to do this to you guys listening. Um, but in college, <laughs> uh, in, in one of my English courses or maybe a few, I, I really was fascinated by, um, the English writers of, uh, the 19th and 20th century and their, how they love to take their characters to Italy. Um, by English, I mean like the British writers, how they like to take their characters to Italy and Italy serves as this, as this like place to crack open the propriety and like really explore emotion and an intellectual awakening and all that sort of stuff like that. I just thought, I thought their obsession with Italy kind of obsessed me. And so obviously Luca Guadagni knew himself as Italian. So it's not like that surprising that everything he makes, almost everything he makes is set in Italy. But that idea of Italy as this place to send his American or British or whatever characters to have their own, uh, you know, awakening, um, is, is continues to be interesting to me. Yeah. I, I watched, um, I, I was a guest on a podcast during quarantine, um, where one of the movies we talked about was a room with a view, uh, the merchant ivory film, which I had never seen before. And it was so interesting. And I also had watched recently talented Mr. Ripley. And I think that there is something so alluring, obviously about the way that these things present Italy as this kind of, I don't know, pure state of being. Um, but there's also something a little pan, like condescending and touristic about that, you know? And, and I think that's been a criticism leveled at things like a room with a view where it's like, you know, the Italian people are greeted as these kind of agrarian simpletons who just kind of like (laughs) don't have all the, you know, intellectual trap, you know, concerns of the high minded British people. Um, and that was, you know, just th- that those stories are a product of their day. But like, but I think that why that's why it's so interesting to watch an Italian, a gay Italian. So someone who's kind of o- o- a little marginalized in his own country, um, explore that attraction and to really, um, you know, embolden it in some cases. I mean, you know, common by your name is like the, the Italian you know, board of tourism should just like play that movie on a loop at all airports or whatever to like, you know, get people to come visit. But also I think on, in this show in particular, where you see something, you know, there's an invading kind of American presence, but also just, you see like a little bit of like the, the plainness and the, the, the regularness of, of this corner of Italy near Venice. Um, so he, he brings a really complicated and I think much more knowing, uh, you know, look, uh, at, at, at this country that is so mythologized in, in like Western, largely English language literature. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's really interesting. Um, a sort of like 
inside out versus outside in uh, view of Italy. And something I love, uh, you talk about, so let's talk about this show specifically. Um, this show centers on um, a family uh, helmed by Chloe Sevigny's Sarah Wilson and Alicia Braga's uh, Maggie, uh, you know, and, and their son, Fraser Wilson, played by Jack Dylan Grazer, uh, who you might know from, or Grazer, sorry, who you might know from it. I mean, that's what I know him from. So I don't know if you have something more highbrow that you know him from, but that's what I know him from. Being Uh, Brian Grazer's nephew. (laughs) Oh, I didn't know that. Uh Today I learned. There's a fair bit of nepotism (laughs) on this show, as we will maybe talk about. I see. Okay. Um, And then his his encounter um, with a character named Caitlin Harper, or Harper, uh, you know, as we learned in this episode, played by Jordan Christine uh, Seaman. And, and, uh, that character's family, like Kid Cuddy, uh, Scott Miskitty is in the cast, uh, as Richard Harper, uh, Harper's father sort of thing. So, um, we didn't get much of that character in this episode. It's, it's mostly centered on, uh, Fraser Wilson as he arrives in Italy, uh, as a sort of fish out of water on this new army base. Um, and yeah, so it's going to deal with, I think, you know, I've only watched the first episode, but going to deal with like, uh, uh, you know, army culture, youth culture, uh, and then gender and sexual identity, I think are, are like, you know, three of the things, uh, certainly on the table here. Uh, did I miss anything, uh, important premise wise? No, except I would say that our, our, our lead for this episode, my understanding is some later episodes, I haven't seen any are going to go into different perspectives. Yeah. Um, but, um, our lead for this episode, Fraser, who who is the son of the new colonel uh, at, on the base uh, in northern Italy, um, he's a tricky character to follow, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think that might be a kind of developing theme throughout the sh- this the season. Is that like, you know, I don't know what the implications of a scene like him slapping his mother are supposed to be, or his general kind of like the way he chafes against other people and, 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 and kind of social situations that might be easier to, to navigate for other people. I don't, I wouldn't want to claim that they're trying to make any case for him being like neuroatypical or anything like that. But like, this is a, a kid who does very much is moving to his own rhythm. And um, sometimes that's appealing. And sometimes like with the slap scene, it's kind of appalling. Um, and I think it's going to be interesting to see how that's kind of explored and dealt with as the season goes on and if it indeed becomes like one of the themes of the show, or if it's just kind of a, I don't know, an unaddressed quirk of the character. My, my notes for this episode are very like spare and very calm. And then right in the middle, it just says slaps her. Why? In all caps. So it's uh, a very strange scene. That whole scene yeah. is really weird. Yeah. Right. Because then she like very tenderly like embraces him immediately thereafter. And you're just like, I, I don't, I don't know what's going on, but like, okay. So this is, this is something that I've been trying to, uh, you know, be down with more. Well, it made me sound really old. Uh, more as as, uh, which is being open to characters who are hard to root for, and really trying to understand why. Uh, you know, the filmmaker, the storyteller is interested in them. Uh, this sort of mindset brought to you by. I mean, I think I think Euphoria Zendaya is such a compelling, uh, just 
on honor surface, like root forable person, uh, in my view. But the character that she plays in Euphoria, Rue, um, I don't know if anyone, everyone listening watched Euphoria, but Euphoria is a show that asks you to, you know, dig in and find empathy for characters, for young characters who are extremely messy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I May Destroy You does a similar thing where, like, um, he, Michaela Cole's character is not always easy to embrace, but, um, but it, it asks you to do so and you are rewarded for doing so. Um, this is also brought to you by me listening to this podcast. Uh, you're wrong about a really good podcast that actually our colleague Katie Ridge turned me on to, but I was just listening to their Courtney Love episode and it's just like Courtney Love, really challenging <laughs> figure, but like it, maybe it's worth it to try to find that empathy or that interest in that really messy challenge of year. It's not to say you have to, you have to hang with like every single, you know, person who frustrates you or whatever, but you know, what rewards there might be if you do. And, and, and given Luca Guadagnino's filmography, I feel like I probably will be rewarded for trying to care about this character who is, yes, extremely off-putting, uh, uh, at least uh, in initial meeting. Um, yeah. And, and, and his closest counterpoint, I mean, even to the opening shot, um, you know, of, of we are, we are is Elio from, right. you can count, um, you can count on me. <laughs> uh, call me by oh, your name. Yeah. Um, where he's leaning on his elbow, you know, he's kind of got his arms folded and he's leaning on his arms and looking, you know, kind of gazing at the world. Like, so clearly there are, there are parallel and even the opening music is similar to the opening credits music, the yeah. Nicholas Britton stuff. Um, so like there are obvious, like intentional parallels here. Um, and Elio is kind of an asshole in the beginning of that movie. You know, right. he's, he's obnoxious because he is kind of loose and free with all of his, you know, his beautiful villa and the, the, the summer kind of splayed out before him. And you feel like a, t- a pang of, of annoyance, you know? Right. And I think that's being recreated here, maybe to a more like intense degree. Um, but I think that like probably I'm not a parent myself, but I would imagine that part of the journey of some people's parenthood experience is like having a difficult kid and learning to love that difficulty, not in spite of it, but kind of accept that as part of the, the, the person. Um, and, and, and maybe to, to feel that love all the more intensely because of that. So um, I, I don't know. Yeah. I, 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 my, my trust is that we will get to a place where um, Fraser in some senses, as much as that teenager can makes a bit more sense, I guess, but um, we'll have to see. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause I think Jack Dylan, I mean, it's hard. It's, it's unfair to compare anyone to the beauty that is Timothy Chalamet, but like Jack Dylan Grazer, I think, you know, if he didn't have the bleached hair and the scumbro mustache, like he, he also, I think looks a bit like Timothy Chalamet. So I think it is, it is, uh, very difficult not to think about Elio when you look at, at this kid. Um, but something that is markedly different from, uh, I would say the Desire Trilogy, but maybe not Suspiria, because Suspiria, though it is a beautiful film, is like, has some sensory unpleasantness to it. A lot of it is on the soundtrack, but there, you know, it's like trying to put you on edge. Um, and I think that's true of this, the, the, the heat and the sun and the day drinking of this episode, like, almost gave me a headache by proxy, uh, intentionally so, I'm sure. Um, but it's not, this isn't like the, the lush, sumptuous Italian villa Italy. This is Veneto at like hot high noon. The light is really like white and bright. And, um, 
like honestly, I was like, if if this were me, if I were moving uh to this army base with my moms, um, I would be inside where the air conditioning is, mm-hmm. or or a, just like parked in front of a fan. I would not be wandering the street taking wine from strangers. So that's uh that's just me though. I don't know. Yeah, no, I mean, quite unlike Commodore Name, like the sun is not dappled here. There is no dappling right. happen. There is no shade. There, it's all you know very. Uh, you know, I love that that bit where he, you know, out, off the base casually, what well, kind of kind of following that girl, um, uh, orders a red wine, and the, the woman gives him a beer. And was like, it's too hot for red wine. I was like, thank you. <laughs> yeah. When that when that when those other people offered him water or wine, I was like, don't give this child. Wine. I mean, like, I'm all for free. <laughs> like free flowing Italy, but like this is a dehydrated child. Give him that bottle of water, uh, sort of thing. So and they drank. He just guzzled that box of wine. Oh, um, but uh, but yeah. Um, Look, we've all been in there in the last six months. All right, I'm just gonna say, <laughs> you do, you do what you yeah. gotta do. Um, I want to talk a bit about um Chloe Sevigny and, and Elise Braga, um, who we will I, I know spend more time with as as the show goes on, but like. Chloe Sevigny, I'm delighted to see her here as Sarah, this like really uh, interesting uh, authority figure uh, who is who is nonetheless like encountering her own, um, you know, gentle so far, but still obnoxious uh, gender discrimination, um, some homophobia, perhaps as well. Um, But Elisa Braga is is an actress who like. I I thought I always thought we would see more of her. Uh, you know, um she's Brazilian, she's been in plenty of things, but just like not enough and I always really like her and I really I mean she's obviously like the easiest to like character we've met so far in this show um because y- you talked about this idea of like loving a difficult child not in spite of their flaws but sort of because of and so these like loving looks that she gives uh her kid as he's like b- blind drunk uh, in her car or, or the like, you know, the shaving lesson and all of that. Like, I just, I, I, I'm, I'm glad that there's someone here who is just like very warm with her own, own interior difficulties. She's not like a two dimensional thing, but, uh, I, I'm just, I'm grateful for her presence. Did you have any, any, uh, thoughts there? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm trying to suss out the, the exact family dynamic. Like it, 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 you know, I'm like, I don't know. I'm I'm not sure, I guess, how if Maggie is supposed to have been there since the beginning of Fraser's life. Right. Or if, you know, because there, there's, there seems to be a, a kind of nice remove between her and Fraser where it's like, she can, she's obviously, you know, caring and concerned and all those things, but there's a kind of camaraderie that's less filial. Yeah. Then it is, you know, something else. And so, and you see, obviously, he, that Fraser has this really intense relationship with Sarah, his biological mother, that is so fraught, especially in that one scene. Um, and then it just interacts differently. And, and, and I guess they complement each other well, at least in this episode. So I think that's such an interesting dynamic to explore. I also, you know, it put me off in a way, but I also just appreciate the commitment to the fact that in this opening scene where they're, you know, at the airport and in the car being picked up by uh, Jenny, the character played by Faith Lobby, who I believe is Scott Mascuti's playing Scott Mascuti's wife in the show. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, 
is they're like kind of a mean family. Like like they're not that polite. Yeah. They're <laughs> a little cold or a lot cold. Um, but I kind of buy that for this kid from New York City, for this woman who has risen to the ranks in a really, you know, uh, male-dominated, aggressive, violent uh you know organization um i mean even the the when she when she's having the kind of flag passed to her as, right. the, as the commander when he's like there were you know this many brawls this many rapes like you know this is a brutal world that Correct. she is trying to like rise up in um so i kind of get what the prickliness i guess um and i you know again it felt a little alienating to me but um you know guadagnino and his co-writers um really commit which i you know appreciate that the co-writers by the way are francesca manieri and paolo giordano um and if anyone of that of this persuasion is is so tempted if you wanted to google image search paolo giordano you will not be disappointed (laughs) (laughs) um uh love 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 to see it love to hear it um yeah no uh, my sense of that like welcome to the base sequences like however warm this character jenny is and she is there is this like um i think this wary uh, looking for their family to be rejected sort of feeling because of yeah you know that they're two moms um and i don't know i, I don't know where the uh military based in veneto italy is right now uh with like lesbians uh you know in the core but uh you know, I, I I can't imagine the military is like the friendliest place for a lesbian couple. So um. no, and Italy still, you know, has its issues with that. I mean, obviously less so in the north where, um, you know, the bigger cities are uh, and there's more money. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I remember being in Rome, I don't know, probably 10 years ago now. And, and we met a, 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 someone that my friend who I was with had known in, in a pre, from a previous trip to Rome. And I kind of asked him a little timidly, like, where are the gay bars? And he was like, no, those aren't really, <laughs> there aren't really gay bars. Um, there are club nights and whatever. But, but yeah, that's an interesting dynamic. And I think, um, you know, we see some of that perhaps reflected in the scene where Fraser stumbles uh, into the shower where the, yes. where the, the army guys are, are, are showering and, and is, you know, clearly a little bit transfixed by at least one man in particular. Um, and so that's obviously opening a door to a whole other plot line, but like, um, I think the way that they kind of, they acknowledge, oh, that's, that's the new Colonel's son, you know, yeah. and then they kind of tease him. It's like, would they have done that if the new Colonel was a man? Yeah. You know, I think the way the kids are treating him, they know that the, the, this new kid is like the boss's kid and they're rude to him and, and maybe they would be no matter what. But I think that like, it's my belief that like, had this car- had, had the new Colonel been a man, there would have been a bit more cautiousness or deference or whatever and so i think that's an interestingly subtle kind of thing that the the show makes um takes you know pains to to illustrate yeah and then i want i i you know jumping off that shower scene i do want to talk a little about uh you know we are firmly rooted in this kid's uh perspective and what is fun and challenging uh about this episode is like i'm not my interpretation uh, based on what we've seen, uh, is that this kid is attracted to both men and women, um, or is that like I just can't tell if his fascination with Harper, um, that's what I'm gonna call this character because that's how this character introduces themselves, is sexual or just sort of like I see something in you that looks 
familiar and interesting to me, a kid from New York who, you know, uh, wears, uh, you know, animal print shorts or whatever. You know what I mean? Something, yeah. something a little bit more interesting. I can't tell if it's sexual or not. There's the scene where he's taking this photo of her. And he looks like he's going to like masturbate to it and then he like doesn't. And so I don't know if like maybe he's still figuring out his sexuality or if he's attracted to, you know, to both genders. Um, or, uh, you know, or if Harper, because Harper is clearly, um, you know, has something going on with their gender or sexual identity. Um, uh, do you know what I mean? It's, 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 yeah, uh, I mean, it's more complicated than, um, you know, a classic hetero, uh, story. So. Yeah. I mean, you know, it might be an attraction to all genders, you know, and, yeah. and, and yeah. clearly Harper is, um, experimenting with their gender performance or gender expression to some extent, uh, at least in that one scene. And I think, you know, I don't want to speak for every kid in the world because that's, you know, a pretty big th- a group of people to talk about, but like, I would say in at least some senses because of, uh, you know, the availability of this discourse and, and representation on the internet, I think younger generations are perhaps like at least a little more cognizant and aware of, if not open to, um, the, the, the many, the myriad gray areas within sexuality and gender and all those things. And yeah. so, my tendency, because I'm older and this is how I came up, uh, was, is to like put, you know, immediately be like, okay, the, put the label on it, you know? Right. Um, yeah. and I kind of have to, un- I mean, I don't, I don't kind of, I do have to untrain myself, um, to think that way to watch something like this or, or really anything that is, I think, you know, uh, hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the reviews director of Pitchfork. And this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Luna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium, Apple Card, or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. For the better, less, you know, less determined to, like, define something right away, or at all. Yeah, like, um... You know, uh, once again, to bring up euphoria, that was another good exercise for me in terms of just like not, yeah, not not boxing anyone. And I guess, I guess the point is when you have an episode like this where you're, where it's very interior to one character who's a little unknowable, then I'm trying as a, you know, a conscientious viewer or whatever to like slurp up whatever clues I can find as to like what's going on with this kid and what they're thinking. Since I don't have an inner monologue and they're not expressing their thoughts and feelings. 
feelings to other people, really. Um, and so I have, so the camera is, is a clue for me where the camera lingers. And so that's like, so I was trying to like clue hunt, but as you're, you're right, it just like, so it defies rigid explanation. And I should probably just like stop trying to rigidly <laughs> explain anything and just like let the story unfold, um, as we go. So, um, so that is, you know, episode one. Basically, we're here on the base. Uh, we've got some folks we're going to meet. I really want to know more about what's going on with Harper and, um, and see all that. Uh, Richard, anything else you want to, you want to mention about this, this episode? Well, not, to, not to harp on it for <laughs> prurient reasons, but the shower scene, I think, is something to be cognizant of. And also the way that that guy factors later into the episode, right? Cause he's the yeah. kind of guy leading the mother around. Um, is well two things one uh i you know i know that call me by your name has come under kind of a continuous or or a cycle of critique for the the the, the central relationship in that movie given the age difference and especially right. given the the how much older army hammer looks than timothy chalamet did in that film um and i and i hear those arguments i do i i have i have a different opinion about the dynamic in that film but um, so I, I would be curious to see if we are, who we are is about to like wander into, I think an even starker version of that territory. Um, I, I hope for many reasons that it doesn't, but we'll see. Mm. Um, though I will say if, if people watch that scene and were, I don't know, amused or something about this kid, um, being, I hate this term, but like dickmatized. Uh, <laughs> people should watch uh, the great uh, Almodovar film Pain and Glory from last year mm. with Antonio Banderas that has a flashback, a long flashback scene or scenes, a whole, a whole flashback narrative within the film. And you're kind of not sure where it's going. And then it gets to where it's going. And you're like, oh, okay. Um, so <laughs> I'm not, I'm not condoning necessarily what we are, who we are is going to do with that one scene or whatever. But, um, it, it just brought to mind that I think you know what I'm talking about in, in, uh, oh, in, in Pain and Glory. I do. Yeah, I yeah. Do. yeah, yeah. Pain and Glory, fantastic film that not uh, not enough people saw, despite Antonio Banderas' deserved nomination. Uh, so yeah, so that's your homework. Go watch all of Luca Guadagnino's movies if you haven't already. Go watch Pain and Glory. Let's just get like really arty and European, and we'll be back next week to talk about you know more folks on an army base. It sounds fun to me. Uh, Richard, until then, where can folks find you? Uh, well, I mean, I would like to be in Italy, but I'm actually mostly just going to be watching vacation home rentals from ca- from my couch. So uh, that'll have to do for now. Uh, and I'll be on Twitter at Rylas and on VF.com covering a lot of films from the Toronto and Venice film festivals, again, from my couch. Uh, but it's almost like I'm there. Uh, Joanna, where will you be until we're back in Veneto? Well, I will be shaving a roast thin enough to put on a sandwich, but not too thin that you lose the flavor. Um, otherwise, you can find me on VF.com or on Twitter at Joe Wrote This, and we will be back in Italia next week. Ciao, bambini. <laughs> I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. 
But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR.